President Biden signs into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which addresses climate change, drug prices, and taxes. It's Tuesday, August 16th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, Republican Liz Cheney's battle with former President Trump may mean she loses her Wyoming House seat. 70% of this state voted for Donald Trump and she has produced no evidence to her accusations towards him. Also this hour, assessing violent threats against the FBI after the search of former President Trump's home in Florida. The reason why they're actively talking about crimes they're planning on committing is because they don't think they're committing a crime. Plus, colleges prepare for monkeypox. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden and congressional Democrats are taking a victory lap with the signing of sweeping health care, tax and climate change legislation totaling $750 billion. One of the most significant laws in our history. Let me say from the start, with this law, the American people won and the special interests lost. The legislation emerging after months of negotiations with final backing from Democratic holdout Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Republicans opposed to the legislation argue it will add to inflationary pressures on the U.S. economy. Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney is facing a primary challenge for her re-election in Wyoming today. NPR's Domenico Montanero looks at her chances. Cheney is just one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump. She is now vice chair of the House Select January 6th committee investigating Trump's conduct on that day. That's landed her in hot water with Trump, who is backing Harriet Hageman over Cheney. Hageman has a substantial lead in the polls, so Cheney has been trying to appeal to Democrats to cross over and vote for her. But there likely are not enough Democrats in the state to keep her in office. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. More than 20 fires have burned over 6,100 acres in Oregon so far. This wildfire season has been milder than the last two years, but as KLCC's Brian Bull tells us, some expected storms midweek are putting fire crews on edge. The storms are expected to roll through the Cascades with areas that are still pretty dry from ongoing drought conditions from the last couple of years. A lightning strike could spark a fire that in turn could grow fast in that dry environment. Oregon has implemented a statewide smoke detection camera system, but officials still urge people to call 911 at the first sign of smoke. That's Brian Bull reporting. The representative for United Nations Secretary General in Afghanistan warns that the country could descend into chaos if the Taliban keep ruling as they are. NPR's Zee Hadid has this from Kabul. It was a dire warning that comes a year after the Taliban overran Kabul and began ruling the country. Marcus Potzel, who's the acting head of UNAMA, which represents the UN Secretary General, spoke to NPR in Kabul. When asked if the Taliban could continue ruling this way, he said, You cannot govern the country uh, against the will of the people for a long time. Potzel adds, If the Taliban do not change their behavior, my fear is that Afghanistan will go into that direction. He said the Taliban had stripped women of their rights, they had not created a political system that included other Afghans, and they had violently suppressed criticism of the group. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Kabul. The Dow has closed up 239 points, ending at 34,151. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston will seek permission from the state to ban the use of fossil fuels in newly constructed buildings. Mayor Michelle Wu said today she's filing a home rule petition to join the state's pilot program that allows 10 communities to have such a ban. Wu says it'll help reduce climate harming emissions by having buildings use electric heat pumps rather than natural gas for heating. Opponents say the policy will make housing more expensive by increasing the costs of construction. MBTA and state officials are warning of severe traffic during the month-long shutdown of the Orange Line that starts Friday night. WBUR's Dave Faniff spoke about this with Jim Rooney of the Boston Chamber of Commerce. Rooney says the language being used by state officials to avoid the region altogether if possible until the shutdown is over will have a significant impact, especially on small businesses that are just getting back on their feet from the pandemic. And now they get punched in the gut with news like this. So you can't help but feel for small businesses. And I suspect that their cash flows are not such that they can easily absorb a month of either loss or significantly lower revenue. Rooney says companies need to be flexible with workers who have to commute into Boston. They're likely going to be late for work much more frequently than is routine until the shutdown ends. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. The search for a man who jumped off the so-called Jaws Bridge on Martha's Vineyard has been suspended for the night. State police say dive teams searched the pond side of the bridge today without locating 21-year-old Tavon Bulgin of Jamaica Plain. Conditions on the ocean side of the inlet are too dangerous to search this afternoon. His brother Tavares also jumped off the bridge and was found dead yesterday. UMass Amherst won't have enough dorm space on campus for students students this fall. The school says 120 transfer students will be provided housing in a hotel about 15 minutes away. UMass officials say a greater than expected number of returning students are opting to live on campus. In sports, Red Sox open a three-game set with the Pirates in Pittsburgh tonight. And in our weather forecast, a chance of showers tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, some scattered showers, especially in the morning. Highs will be near 70 degrees. For Thursday, it'll be mostly sunny with temperatures in the 80s. And Friday, sunshine all day. Highs in the upper 80s. It is 75 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. An armed man was killed last week after trying to storm the FBI field office in Cincinnati. Federal prosecutors charged another man in Pennsylvania yesterday after he posted violent threats against FBI agents online. And U.S. authorities are now warning of an increase in threats to federal law enforcement after last week's court-authorized search of former President Trump's Florida home. But assessing which threats are credible and being able to respond to them is challenging. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef joins us now. Hi, Odette. Hey, Juana. So, Odette, what can you tell us about the level and volume of threats that we are seeing right now? Well, we're seeing lots of calls to violence, um, particularly on alt-tech social platforms like Gab, Truth Social, and Telegram. 
You know, the volume this time isn't at the level it was in the lead up to January 6th, but some are saying that it feels similar. You know, we've seen these calls for civil war before, but now people are saying it's here and it's time to act. I think what's notable now, Juana, is the specificity of the targets. You know, people are calling out the FBI, um, the FBI agents involved in the search by name and even their family members. And it's worth noting that there is a history of anti-government movements and mistrust of the FBI among certain extremist pockets in the U.S. But the degree to which these views have now been taken up by a much larger portion of Americans is what's causing concern. So it's not, you know, domestic extremists in the way that we've thought about them before. It's more like what we saw last week in Cincinnati, you know, someone who seemingly self-radicalized and who appears to have acted on his own. Okay. So where then does that leave law enforcement in assessing what is a threat and what is not? So this is where things are tricky. Uh, First, it's just impossible to continually, continually track the huge volume of posts across platforms. Um, But there are also some other factors that make this particular domestic threat difficult to stop. One of them is that law enforcement today pretty much has to act instantaneously on a tip in order to stop a suspected attack from happening. Here's Donnell Harvin from the Rand Corporation. He's the former chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for Washington, D.C. There is often a brief period of time between radicalization and mobilization of violence that law enforcement has an opportunity to interdict that individual. Um, and that brief moment is, is such a small window. We've seen where um, people go from radicalization to mobilization of violence very, very quickly. And Harvin points to last week's attempt in Cincinnati, where there was only a day or two between the individual's suspected online posts that indicated he was preparing for violence and when he actually attempted the attack. And that's really not much given the legal requirements for law enforcement to get involved. And what are those legal requirements? Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, this is probably the biggest hurdle that we're seeing in the countering extremism world today, Juana. You know, for context, you have to remember that much of that infrastructure was built in response to 9-11, where the idea was to interdict plots by foreign entities or people who were influenced by them. You know, today, attention is on the heightened threat from domestic extremists. And you just can't use those same tools because Americans enjoy certain free speech and due process rights under the Constitution. So what that means is that in order to initiate surveillance or an investigation, law enforcement needs to be able to provide evidence of a credible and specific threat to get the authorization they need. So details like when and where an attack might happen. And often, Juana, those details just aren't there. NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you. Sure thing. The soldiers known as the Azovstal defenders are heroes in Ukraine. They held out for months against the Russians, fighting from a bombed-out steel plant in the southern port city of Mariupol before becoming prisoners of war. Well, last month their prison was bombed, allegedly by their Russian captors. NPR's Joanna Kakissis spoke to some of these soldiers' families as they waited to find out whether the men were dead or alive. Olha Kerod was busy at work at a pharmacy in the western city of Lviv when she got a frantic call from her teenage daughter. My daughter said, Mom, something exploded in Alenivka. They blew up a building and many people died. Alenivka is a prison colony in Russian-occupied eastern Ukraine. Russia holds captured Ukrainian soldiers there. On July 29th, 
the day of the explosion, Olha's husband Stanislav, she calls him Stas for short, was in that prison. Everyone started calling me, texting me, asking, Olha, Olha, what has happened? There were at least 50 dead and scores more wounded. She worried that Stas was among them. But I didn't cry. I didn't panic. I told myself and my daughter, don't believe anything until we know for sure. Stas worked as a naval border guard in the southeastern port city of Mariupol, where the family lived. Olha had not seen him for six months since Russian forces bombed and shelled Mariupol, leaving thousands dead and nearly every building damaged. Stas joined several thousand soldiers who barricaded themselves beneath a sprawling local steelworks factory called Azovstal in a final last stand. The spring, NPR reached Stas there via WhatsApp. He sent us several voice memos describing the constant bombing and shelling, how they were running out of medicine and food, and how relieved he was that his own family had escaped Mariupol. We last heard from him in May when he and thousands of other soldiers left Azovstal in what they assumed was an evacuation. Instead, they were handed over to the Russians. His last text to NPR read, we are being evacuated into captivity. We met his wife Olha a couple of weeks later at a cafe in Lviv. She's dark-haired and intense. Over the next several weeks, we speak several times. She tells us she heard from Stas directly only once in June when he called her from a number she did not recognize. He told me the conditions inside the prison were terrible, that the prisoners were fed only once every two days, that hygiene was non-existent. Then, on July 29th, came the explosion. The blast destroyed a warehouse where prisoners had recently been moved. Images of charred bodies appeared on social media. Ukraine said Russian forces blew up the building to cover up torture of Ukrainian prisoners. Russia, in turn, accused Ukraine of killing its own soldiers to keep them from talking. It all made Olha's head spin. I didn't believe it, that such a thing could happen, that even the Russians could do such a thing. Hundreds of miles east in Kyiv, Alla Samolenko was also shocked. She was desperate for news on her son, Ilya. Yes, I had only rumors, and it's very hard to tell about. Alla knew many soldiers from Ilya's regiment were in Alenovka. She pleaded with the International Committee for the Red Cross for help. And they very polite and full of mercy, you know. And after that, no connection. No feedback, no feedback. The Russians blocked the Red Cross and other independent investigators from entering the site of the explosion. They instead brought in their own experts who repeated Kremlin talking points, all false, that Ukraine and the U.S. were responsible. In cities across Ukraine, the families of the imprisoned soldiers took to the streets to demand information and justice. Yaroslava Ivantseva protested from her home in the central region of Kirovograd, where she now lives with her daughter and grandchildren after escaping the fall of Mariupol. 
Since the explosion, Yaroslava says she has spent hours scouring Russian social media channels for any details about her husband, Nikolai Ivansov, and her son-in-law, Oleksiy Lyashuk. She says someone sent her a message that Nikolai and Alexei were in the building in Elenivka that burned. I can't even begin to describe my reaction when I found out. I started to cry, and then I immediately got on the phone with Ukrainian military and government officials. But they said they had no information. A few days after the explosion, the Russian military published a list of dead and wounded. Ivansova saw her son-in-law's name on the list of injured. We started cold-calling hospitals in the occupied territories to find out which ones had taken the wounded. But unfortunately, we couldn't get any information. The hospitals only said they didn't have any Ukrainian soldiers there. But her husband's name was not on either list. Neither was Alla Samolenko's son, Ilya. The women have not heard from the soldiers. Alla says their fate seems unclear. I mean, they can kill all of them without any responsibility. And no one in the world can do something. Back in Lviv, Olha Kerod got better news. She finally heard from her husband, Stas. He wrote to say that he was alive, that he is tired and is wondering if people have forgotten about him and the other soldiers. But the families of the soldiers clearly have not forgotten. Olha recently posted a video on Facebook of the soldiers singing in the catacombs of Azovstal before the final fall of their city trapped underground, and yet still free. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Lviv. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, colleges prepare for monkeypox. The time is 18 minutes past four. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. In business news, Boston-based State Street Corporation expects that its purchase of the private investment bank Brown Brothers Harriman will go through, and that's despite some regulatory delays. State Street first expected the $3.5 billion deal to close at the end of last year. It's not clear what's causing the timeline to be extended, but the Biden administration has promised greater scrutiny of financial mergers. State Street's CEO says it is considering changes to the deal, and including the sales price, in an effort to win regulatory approval. On Wall Street, there were some mixed results today. The Dow rose seven-tenths of a percent to close at 34,152. NASDAQ fell two-tenths of a percent, and the S&P gained two-tenths of a percent. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Federation for Children with Special Needs. Celebrate 50 years of a special education revolution, September 10th, fcsn.org slash gala 2022. If you're looking for a book to read on vacation, we've got some page-turning reading recommendations. You can sign up for them at wbur.org slash beachbooks. In our weather forecast, a chance of showers tonight. Temperatures in the 60s. Clouds tomorrow with scattered showers and highs near 70. 75 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. With the new school year in sight, colleges are starting to prepare for a new public health threat, monkeypox. The White House recently declared monkeypox a public health emergency, and campuses have already seen cases. Pooja Salhotra reports. Summer is usually a time of rest in the education world, but for college administrators like Andrea Connor, there hasn't been much of a break. I have ended up accidental COVID czar. Connor is Dean of Students at Lake Forest College, a small school about 30 miles north of Chicago. During the pandemic, she led a team of people tasked with responding to COVID-19. Now they've added a new virus to their watch list, monkeypox. So whether they're students, their faculty or staff, we want to educate them on what to do, what to look for, what the symptoms are, and frankly, exactly where to go <laughs> when, uh, when or if you're concerned um, about monkeypox. Over the last two years, colleges and universities have found ways to manage COVID on campus, but a different virus calls for a different response. Here's the epidemiologist Jay Varma of Weill Cornell Medicine. Monkeypox is, uh, even though it is a, a important public health threat right now, um, it does not present the same risks to campuses Um, that COVID did. That's mostly because COVID spreads very easily through the air, but monkeypox is less contagious. The current outbreak is spreading almost entirely through intimate contact. Still, it doesn't mean colleges are off the hook. It's likely um, that some students on campus uh, will potentially contract monkeypox. In fact, some students already have. Georgetown University in D.C., University of Texas in Austin, and Westchester University outside Philadelphia all told NPR they had at least one confirmed case over the summer. When the fall semester starts, those numbers could go up. Varma says there are certain areas of campus that colleges should keep a close eye on. For example, sports teams and locker rooms, as well as the coming into close contact with, you know, towels or clothing, uh, which can occur in gyms or, or possibly even in, for example, theater troops. A monkeypox infection can also last a lot longer than COVID, sometimes for several weeks. So that means a student who gets the virus could be stuck in their dorm room for a big chunk of their academic semester. This presents a very important challenge, uh, both to the individual who has to put up with that level of isolation, as well as the university itself, uh, which needs to make arrangements to support that. 
Connor at Lake Forest says if a student gets monkeypox, the school will coordinate to help them with their basic needs. We'll have to deliver meals to them. Um, we'll have to make sure that they can get their laundry done. The school is less equipped to help with testing. For that, Lake Forest students have to go off campus. It's a different story at some larger colleges. We have a population of over 37,000 students when everybody's back here in the, the fall and a large workforce. David Sulelis leads the COVID-19 response team at the University of California, Irvine. He says students can already get tested for monkeypox at the campus health center, and the school isn't stopping there. We have actually um, requested that our student health center be considered as a site for vaccinations. Right now, there aren't quite enough vaccines to go around. But if nothing else, he says, colleges are better prepared for monkeypox than they were for COVID. I think a lot of the structures and foundations that campus has built and relationships that we built will allow us to start in a better place in responding to monkeypox. For NPR News, I'm Pooja Salhotra. Confession time. I never got into Game of Thrones. I tried. I did. But honestly, life is too short. Now, I know many of you had a different experience with the HBO series based on George R.R. R. Martin's fantasy novels. Game of Thrones was a rating juggernaut, and it racked up 59, 59 Emmy Awards. Now, a prequel is coming out, House of the Dragon. It starts Sunday night on HBO again, and Glenn Weldon, a host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, is here to get us all ready. Maybe, maybe even me. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Mary Louise. All right, you're going to have to just walk me through this here. Oh, no, look, I get it. I recapped Game of Thrones for NPR, and I kept hearing from all kinds of folks telling me why they weren't watching. Some said it was there just too many characters, and they were mostly, you know, beardy, middle-aged white dudes who all looked alike. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Right. For some, it was the violence, which was extreme, also a fair point. For others, it was its treatment of women, which the show was rightly critiqued for, I think. And for some, it was all the... All the fantasy stuff, the magic and the dragons that kind of snuck into the series uh, slowly at first, and then that's pretty much what it all became about. So, Marilise, trust me, you're not alone. There were an awful lot of dragons. Um, and the, the name of this prequel is giving me pause already, House of the uh -huh. Dragon. Does it correct for the dragons or any of the other things you mentioned? Well, I mean, it still throws a lot at you, character names, place names, history. But essentially, the story of this show is a war over succession. This is War of the Roses, right? So if you can follow Shakespeare's history plays, if you can read Wolf Hall, you can get this. The show opens 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones, so you won't need to remember any of the original characters, you'll be visiting some familiar places, yes, but the conflict mostly takes place within one single family, so there's less to keep track of. Okay, well that's encouraging. It's I can start with a with a clean slate. Yeah, I mean, the Targaryens are the family in question. They were the folks with the long platinum hair, they tend to intermarry, they have a kinship with dragons, and House of the Dragon is set back at the height of the Targaryen dynasty when they're still the most powerful force in the world because they got a lot of dragons. Mm -hmm. uh, and as the series opens, the king, who's played by Paddy Considine, is ruling during a time of peace, but he is getting older, and he hasn't had any male heirs, and his younger brother Damon, who's played by Doctor Who's Matt Smith, is an excellent soldier, and he thinks he's in line for the Iron Throne. 
but he's also very cruel and impulsive, so everyone around the king is jockeying to suggest any alternative to that guy. And one of them is the king's youngest daughter, Rhaenyra. She's played in the first half of the season by Millie Alcock, but there has never been a queen on the Iron Throne before, you see. So you can imagine what all those beardy middle-aged white dudes think of that idea. Uh, yeah. Okay, so you have seen the first couple episodes. Um what would you say to someone who didn't make it through Game of Thrones? Uh, me, hypothetically, should we dive in? Well, it depends on why you gave up. I mean, if it was because of all the characters, yeah, this is a bit leaner in that regard. If it was because of the violence, I mean, it's still there. It's just as intense. If it was because of its treatment of women, well, there's still a lot of boobs and butts, but it does feel less gratuitous. I mean, your mileage may vary. But, uh, Mary Louise, if it's because of all the fantasy stuff, like it sounds like you were, uh, look it, it's right there in the name. As you say, this is House of the Dragon. This is all dragons right. all the time. But I think the most important thing for people to know is that Game of Thrones famously went past the books that Martin has written. And you could feel that. The showrunners were trying to land the plane in the dark. Right. I mean, I didn't even know what the ending was because I didn't watch Game of Thrones, but I know nobody liked it. Oh, I heard from a lot of those people, yeah. But if you are worried that you're going to get burned again, don't be, because this is a story with a beginning, a middle, and a definite end taken right from a book. There will be no vamping. And what's interesting is that the book it's based on, Fire and Blood, is presented not as a novel, but as conflicting historical accounts written in different styles from different points of view. Now, that makes for a very fun read, but television has different demands, and so what's left ambiguous in the book is going to have to be explicitly dramatized one way or the other. So the showrunners are going to have to pick a side, and that's going to be fun to see. So you say. Glenn Weldon, he's a host of NPR's <laughs> Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. Happy watching. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Just ahead on All Things Considered, primary voters are deciding Liz Cheney's political fate today. We'll have the latest on whether she'll be able to keep her Wyoming House seat. In our weather forecast, a chance of showers tonight, temperatures in the 60s, clouds tomorrow, a few scattered showers, especially in the morning. It'll be near 70 tomorrow for most of the day. Sunshine Thursday, highs in the 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 19th, semesteroff.com. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into morning edition, wait, wait, Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. After President Biden recovered from a rebound case of COVID-19, the White House says First Lady Jill Biden has now tested positive for the coronavirus. Like her husband, the 71-year-old First Lady is double vaccinated and boosted and says she's only experiencing mild symptoms. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. 
The First Lady will self-isolate at a private residence in South Carolina for at least the next five days. White House doctors say Biden began to develop cold-like symptoms last night and will start taking Paxlovid, an antiviral drug that has proven effective against preventing severe cases of COVID-19. President Biden, who's considered a close contact according to CDC guidelines, will wear a mask for 10 days when indoors and while in close proximity to others. The Bidens have been vacationing in South Carolina, and Jill Biden will no longer travel to Florida later this week for a series of scheduled events in support of military families. Some 15,000 nurses in Minnesota, including Minneapolis, have authorized a strike. The vote tally comes after months of contract negotiations between the union and hospital officials from Minnesota Public Radio. Michelle Wiley reports. The Minnesota Nurses Association has been negotiating over numerous issues since March, including working conditions and paid family leave. Nurses have been without a contract since June. But one of the biggest concerns, the union says, is staff retention. Nurse Jamie Wickland. The hospitals have been hiring nurses, but we're seeing them not complete orientation. If they do complete orientation, they actually leave within a couple months because of the internal environment they've created with the unsafe staffing. Some 15 hospitals would be affected by a strike. In a statement, the Twin Cities Hospital Group called on the nurses' union to agree to mediation. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Wiley in Minneapolis. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Several Boston leaders say the T needs to reassess its plans for shuttle buses to bypass Chinatown during the month-long shutdown of the Orange Line that begins on Friday. In a letter to the T today, Mayor Michelle Wu and City Council President Ed Flynn are among those who say the neighborhood needs to have at least one shuttle bus stop. Flynn says Chinatown has many immigrants, people with disabilities, students, and others who might find it tough to get around without better transportation alternatives. The lack of a bus shuttle stop at either Tufts Medical Center or Chinatown will make it extremely difficult for residents and workers in the area. We have to make sure that the residents of Chinatown are treated with respect and dignity. The T says it's not possible to run an efficient shuttle through Chinatown. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey is joining 21 other attorneys general to try to preserve abortion access in Idaho and Texas. The AGs have filed legal briefs that argue those states' efforts to ban abortions violate certain federal protections for emergency health care treatment. Healey says the bans would put an additional strain on health systems in states like Massachusetts, that protect abortion access. Boston is angling to prohibit fossil fuels from new buildings. The city wants to participate in a pilot program that allows 10 Massachusetts communities to implement fossil fuel bans. The program is designed to explore how fossil fuel elimination affects housing supply and economic development. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says it's an opportunity to drive forward the city's fight against climate change. We need a policy that will provide cleaner air, lower energy costs, less carbon emissions, a better quality of life, and so much more in terms of the possibility 
and potential for our residents. State Representative Jeff Roy says Boston is likely to be admitted to the pilot based on admission criteria. A Dorchester man accused of selling drugs and illegally carrying a gun in the so-called Mass and Cass area of Boston is being held without bail. The Suffolk County DA says Keon Leary was exploiting the problems in the area, which is known as a gathering place for people experiencing homelessness, addiction, and mental health issues. Leary pleaded not guilty to charges of trafficking fentanyl and cocaine, as well as weapons possession. In sports, Red Sox open a three-game set with the Pirates in Pittsburgh tonight. And our forecast, we could see a few scattered showers later on tonight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Tomorrow, showers in the morning, cloudy in the afternoon. Highs near 70 degrees. Sunshine Thursday and Friday. Temperatures in the 80s. And for the weekend, right now, looks like it'll be sunny and warm. Temperatures in the upper 80s Saturday and Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Wyoming Republican Liz Cheney has been waging a public battle against Donald Trump since January 6th. She's been doing it despite the political consequences within her own party. Today, Cheney is facing those consequences at home in an uphill battle to keep her seat in Congress in Wyoming's primary election. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is in the studio with us now. Hey there, Deirdre. Hey there. Hi. So, Cheney won her previous races for the House by big margins. This one is shaping up differently. Is this all down to her criticism of Donald Trump? It really is. He is really the factor in this primary. Cheney's a conservative whose policy views are in line with most Wyoming voters. I talked to Teton County Republican Chair Mary Martin. She backed Cheney in the past, but said Cheney's made this election all about January 6th. Martin reminded me that 70% of the state voted for Trump, and some people feel alienated by Cheney's message, even though they agree with her on a lot of policies. Here's Martin talking about what she says is Cheney's demeanor becoming an issue in this race. I have heard personally from folks that were really staunch supporters of Liz Cheney and contributed lots of money to her in the past that she's insulted them insulted them. It's so interesting, Deirdre. So what what has Liz Cheney's strategy been in the race? It's really all in on her criticism of Trump. It's in her closing ad. She continues to argue that her fight to preserve democracy is what she thinks she's her focus is, is really worth more than any one political campaign. Sort of an acknowledgement that she thinks she could lose. She's enlisted her father, Dick Cheney, the former vice president who represented Wyoming in the House for five terms. Here's his message in a recent campaign ad. Dick Cheney also focused on Donald Trump. He is a coward. A real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. He lost his election and he lost big. I know it, he knows it, and deep down, I think most Republicans know it. 
Cheney also voted in Congress this summer like someone who knew that she could lose in a Republican primary. She voted in favor of preserving same-sex marriage, an issue that she's done a 180 on. Her sister is married to a woman, and they had a falling out over the issue, but have reconciled recently. Cheney also voted for a bipartisan gun violence prevention bill. That's not popular in Wyoming, where Second Amendment rights are a big issue. Now, her main opponent in the primary today is Harriet Hageman. What kind of courses she charted? She was endorsed by Donald Trump, and she's she's touted that endorsement. She's an attorney who used to support Cheney, but now she's branding Cheney as out of step with the state. Hageman's been crisscrossing the state at a lot of campaign stops, while Cheney has really limited her appearances to small private house parties. Cheney's aides say security concerns have been kind of an issue on how she campaigns. Um, what does Cheney say her next step is if she does lose tonight? Well, her aides are already describing this primary fight as really the first battle in a long war against Donald Trump. She remains the vice chair of the House Committee probing January 6th, which is still interviewing witnesses and is expected to hold more hearings this fall. Liz Cheney has made it clear her main goal is to make sure that Donald Trump never gets near the White House again. That January 6th committee is going to issue a final report by the end of this year. End of this year. And what about all the talk that Liz Cheney might run for president? Well, she certainly made some moves uh, to do that in 2024. She traveled to the Reagan Library in California, a stop for GOP presidential hopefuls. It's also unclear if she'd stay in the GOP or maybe become an independent. She raised $14 million, a record, most expensive primary in Wyoming history. She's got about half of that left, and she's built up this big donor base from out of state that she could tap into. There's also some speculation that Cheney could hold off on announcement on another campaign, but set up a political operation where she could travel around the country and sort of continue her fight, uh, which she says is to preserve democracy. That is NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Thanks, Deirdre. Thank you. Washington is the first state in the nation to create a missing persons alert specifically for Native Americans. They experience some of the highest rates of violence in the country. It is a victory for a movement that has worked to bring visibility to missing and murdering, missing and murdered indigenous women. But as Amy Radel of member station KUOW reports from Seattle, the first use of this new system reveals how complicated some of these missing persons cases truly are. The new Missing Indigenous Person Alerts in Washington state came online July 1st, and within a few weeks, the system was activated. Well, an alert has gone out as law enforcement is looking for a missing woman from Lummi Nation. Angela McGuire, pictured here on your screen, was last seen on Saturday in Ferndale. Angela McGuire's mother is Lucy London. She filed the missing person report with Lummi Nation tribal police that triggered the alert. The situation is complicated. Her daughter has bipolar disorder and has been in and out of the hospital. After being out of contact for about a week, London was concerned that her daughter's mental health was deteriorating. She was blocking everybody except my youngest daughter, and she wasn't posting anything on Facebook. Lummi Nation police in northwest Washington contacted the state patrol. There, the missing person alert coordinator, Carrie Gordon, says she was able to issue an alert in just a few minutes. We felt that it met the criteria and the the agencies requesting it because they feel like they need to find her right away. McGuire's story and photo were quickly picked up by local media. And by the next day, the alert had been called off. McGuire was reported safe. But authorities didn't contact her mother, Lucy London, who saw the news online. Nobody told me. And I'm the one reported it. And I did talk to the police officer that 
took my report. He said, I guess it's a privacy issue. London says she suspects her daughter may have canceled the alert herself. Her daughter's now staying at a nearby shelter and in limited contact with family members. Patty Gosh is a tribal liaison with Washington State Patrol. She says anyone over the age of 18 can tell law enforcement not to share their whereabouts. She recently located a man whose family had been searching for him for decades. We contacted the people who contacted us and said, hey, we have some really great news, but we also have some hard news because we have to respect his privacy. The man told investigators he didn't want his relatives to find him. But even if families aren't always reunited, the new alerts for missing Indigenous people are getting the word out about a vulnerable population. Patricia Whitefoot is a member of the Yakima Nation in central Washington. She became an advocate for missing Indigenous women after her sister Daisy disappeared in 1987. I have been thinking, what if that, that was in place when my sister went missing 30 years ago? What would that have done? It would have alerted everybody. I'm in a, from a rural, uh, remote community, and you don't often know what goes on around you. In the past, families say police have been reluctant to act on these disappearances. But Lucy London says when she contacted local police about her daughter, the officer was immediately responsive. I feel that he put out a missing report right away because they know of my situation that she is making unsafe decisions right now. And the alert worked. London's daughter was missing, and people acted with urgency to find her. But London says her daughter's unstable situation, having bipolar disorder and in a shelter, highlights the distance between being found and being truly safe. For NPR News, I'm Amy Radel in Seattle. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Eight years ago, a meteor believed to be from another solar system arrived on Earth. It entered our atmosphere at over 100,000 miles per hour before exploding into hot fragments and falling into the South Pacific Ocean. Avi Loeb and his team were the first to spot what might be the first interstellar object to reach our planet. He's a professor at Harvard's Center for Astrophysics, and now he is hoping to launch an expedition to find those fragments at the bottom of the ocean and figure out where the meteor came from. Professor Loeb joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Professor Loeb, first of all, why do we suspect that this meteor came from outside of our solar system? Oh, that's very simple. It moved very fast, uh, roughly 40 kilometers per second when it exploded in the lower atmosphere. And from that, we can infer that it was moving much too fast to be bound to the sun. Wow. So how exactly do you plan to retrieve these fragments and how do you know where to look? The government uh, spotted this object using part of a missile warning system. It took uh, a few years for the U.S. Space Command to issue a letter confirming that our assertion that this object came from outside the solar system is correct. The government also released the light curve of the fireball that exploded. From that, we could infer that the material strength of this object was tougher than iron. Uh, It's just like mowing the lawn. 
we are planning to use a sled with a magnet that will scoop a very thin layer off top of the muck. It would be of historic significance because it will be the first time that humans put their hands on the materials from a big object that came from outside the solar system. Now, Professor Loeb, you have just compared this to mowing the lawn, and I have to say mowing the lawn has never sounded that interesting to me. What do you hope to find when you do this search? The first thing that we will be able to test is whether the object came from outside the solar system because the composition would be different than all the rocks we find in the solar system. But uh, there is also the possibility that it will be made of some alloy that nature doesn't put together. And that would imply the object is technological. My hope, if you ask what my wish is, is that if indeed it's of artificial origin, there was some component of the object that survived. And if it has any buttons on it, I would love to press them. So if I understand all of this correctly, the simplest explanation is that this meteor was a big rock. And I know that you run the Galileo Project, which searches for extraterrestrial technology. So I've got to ask you, are we talking about aliens here? (laughs) We don't have enough evidence to confirm an artificial origin, but at least in the case of the meteor, we're able to scoop the ocean floor and seek that evidence. A lot of astronomers say there are far simpler explanations for what we've observed. How do you respond to that? My point is, if a cave dweller were to find a cell phone, the cave dweller would argue the cell phone is a rock of a type that we've never seen before. And the only way to find out is to press some buttons on this cell phone and realize that it records your voice, it records your image, then it would be clear that it's not a rock. Avi Loeb, Harvard professor of astronomy, who proposes to study what might just be the first known object from another star to reach Earth. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the doctor in Nigeria who first detected the monkeypox outbreak and why he was discouraged from sharing some information about the disease. And in the next hour of our program, the Food and Drug Administration announces that hearing aids will be made available over the counter. In our weather forecast, looks like we may see some scattered showers tonight. Temperatures dropping into the 60s. Tomorrow, scattered showers in the morning, cloudy in the afternoon, and highs around 70. Thursday, sunshine, temperatures in the 80s, and Friday, sunny with highs in the upper 80s. It's 75 degrees in Boston at 11 minutes before 5. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. You ever been to a restaurant and the conversation goes like this? Sir... Love to have you in this evening. It's gonna be about 10 to 15 minutes. What do you mean? There's a table right over there. 
I'm Kai Rizdal. I'll tell you what, it is not about the tables. We'll explain next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There are now more than 11,000 monkeypox cases here in the U.S. And the numbers are rising as the country races to control the outbreak before the disease becomes entrenched. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that most of us hadn't heard of monkeypox. But like all epidemics, it had a beginning. A moment in time when one person caught the disease and it spread from that person to more and more people. Nailing down this chronology can be useful in understanding how a virus spreads, but doing so is very difficult. This time, however, scientists have gotten pretty close. They've been able to zero in on some of the outbreak's earliest cases, cases which showed up years ago in Nigeria. NPR's global health correspondent Michaeline Duclef has this exclusive story about the doctor who detected those first known cases and the warning he tried to issue to the world. This story begins five years ago with a doctor named Dinir Ogoina. Back in 2017, he saw what's perhaps the most important patient of his career. They brought my attention to a young boy. An 11-year-old boy with a very strange rash that looked like blisters. He had skin lesions that are very large, affecting the face and all over the body. Ogoina is an infectious disease specialist at Niger Delta University in southern Nigeria. And when he saw the size of the lesions or pox on the body, he wondered if the boy had what was then a rare disease, a very rare disease. The suspicion of monkeypox just came up. So Ogoina tested the boy and he was right, monkeypox. At the time, he thought this monkeypox outbreak would act the way it always had, the way it had been described in textbooks and scientific papers since the 1970s. That is, the virus came from an animal, like a rodent or a monkey. It affects mainly children. Because when they're out playing, they often come into contact with animals. There was this speculation that uh, this uh, young boy played with monkeys around the, the community. Furthermore, the virus doesn't spread very easily between people because it's not very contagious, especially between healthy adults. So the previous outbreaks were small, only a few dozen cases in rural areas. And Aguina and the other doctors thought that this one, back in 2017, would be the same. So we felt, okay, it could be the regular monkeypox that we know has been described in Central Africa. But a few weeks later, Aguina started to become concerned. The outbreak began to grow very rapidly. Cases popped up not just near this one boy, but all over. We are seeing cases just suddenly appearing across the country. The virus seemed to be spreading further and faster than expected. And it wasn't kids getting infected, but rather men in their 20s and 30s. Young men, active men. It was very, very unusual at that time. These men didn't fit the typical profile for monkeypox either. They weren't handling animals. They were middle-class men living in busy modern cities. And their rashes weren't in the typical place on their bodies. Instead of being on their face and extremities, the men had blisters around their genitals. They were very, very extensive, very, very extensive genital lesions that appeared. Ogoina started to investigate these patients more and found that many of them had high-risk sexual behavior, multiple partners, sex with prostitutes. Ogoina started to realize something, something huge that the virus had changed, and for the first time, it was spreading through sexual contact. 
We have already proposed that sexual roots is something that we need to look really look at. Interesting. So fascinating because it's so different than what you see in the textbooks, right? Yeah, completely different. Why are they not affecting children? Right. Why not females? Why not right. the elderly? Why are we having young men, 20 to 40 years only? Agoina knew these findings had massive implications. It meant the virus no longer needed to jump from an animal, but instead it could more easily jump from human to human. And that meant the current outbreak would be extremely difficult to stop. It meant monkeypox was no longer just a threat to communities in Nigeria, but a threat really to the world. So Agoina warned Nigerian health officials years ago they wouldn't listen. At an international meeting, he tried to bring up the possibility of sexual transmission. Somebody told him to be quiet. We had one meeting. Somebody said I should not say it. Really? We have experience. Yes, uh, one meeting like this. Somebody said I should not say it, that it is not possible. To, we should not worry. Jump ahead five years. Tonight, the World Health Organization sounding the alarm on the rapid spread of monkeypox. More than 70 countries now reporting cases, the U.S. nearing 2,900 infections. New York City is the epicenter of the outbreak in the U.S. And for the first time in history, monkeypox is spreading across the world. And just as Orgoina predicted, through sexual contact. Right now in the U.S., approximately 94% of cases have been transmitted through sexual or intimate contact in gay and queer sexual networks. In fact, Ogoina's insights and knowledge go even further. He says the outbreak in Nigeria in 2017 actually never stopped. Health officials just stopped looking for cases, and the outbreak went underground. That attention to monkeypox just dropped. Oh. And on account of that, there was declining surveillance and, and the likes. Over time, that outbreak grew bigger. Then it did something extremely unusual. It turned into the huge international outbreak we're fighting right now. Michael Warby is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona. He's been studying the genes of monkeypox virus taken from patients in Nigeria in 2017 and ones taken from patients in the current outbreak. He says the gene sequences, their patterns, tell a very convincing story. Yeah, I think in many ways it's, it's really clear. The data haven't been published. It's still preliminary. But Warby says the pattern in the DNA sequences shows that this international monkeypox outbreak started in Nigeria years and years ago, even before the little boy showed up in Ogorna's office. It's clear that there's been continuous cases or endemic transmission in Nigeria from 2017, maybe a little bit before 2017, and then something from there just got exported out. Exported out to Europe, North America, Asia, really exported out all over the world. He says the data are indisputable. These are the things that are obvious to someone who looks at genetics. So this means that Dr. Dimir Ogoina, the Nigerian doctor, was the first person to detect this international outbreak. And it means the world has had at least five years to prevent monkeypox from spreading all over the world. But the international effort to stop monkeypox in Nigeria has paled in comparison to the effort in Europe and North America. For example, since monkeypox started showing up in the West this year, there has been a rapid effort to vaccinate millions of people. But the same hasn't been true in Africa. To this day, Nigeria hasn't seen one monkeypox vaccine. To say this is a point of frustration for Agoina is an understatement. In fact, he calls the weak international response a lost opportunity for Nigeria and for the rest of the world. 
Michaeline Duclef, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. In our weather forecast, clouds tonight, maybe some scattered showers later on. Temperatures dropping down into the 60s. Tomorrow, scattered showers in the morning, clouds in the afternoon, highs around 70 degrees. And Thursday, mostly sunny with temperatures in the low 80s. 75 degrees right now in Boston at 5 o'clock. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden signs the final piece of his pared-down domestic agenda that includes the biggest federal investment ever to fight climate change. It's Tuesday, August 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the new reductions in water usage after federal officials declare a shortage on the Colorado River. Also, voting rights activists warn about the potential consequences of a theory that claims state lawmakers should have power over federal elections and how the issue of race affected the Capitol insurrection. Some white people are really concerned about a loss of power and status in American society. Plus, the feds say hearing aids will be available without a prescription. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden today has signed landmark legislation into law that is aimed at tackling climate change issues, along with lessening the cost of prescription drugs for Medicare recipients. Dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act, the roughly $700 billion bill passed without a single Republican vote through a process known as reconciliation. At the White House, Biden said the bill is important to meeting his administration's climate change goals. This new law also provides tax credits that's going to create tens of thousands of good-paying jobs and clean energy manufacturing jobs, solar factories in the Midwest and the South, wind farms across the plains and off our shores, clean hydrogen projects, and more all across America. The measure, despite its name, will not do much, though, to rein in higher prices for gas, food, rents, and restaurant meals. It's seen as a major accomplishment by the Biden administration ahead of the November midterm elections. 
The chief financial officer of the Trump Organization is in talks to plead guilty in a wide-ranging fraud case. But as NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports, neither the DA's office nor Alan Weisselberg's attorneys are commenting. A New York judge denied a motion last week to dismiss the case, charging Trump's company and CFO Alan Weisselberg with a 15-year scheme to cheat tax authorities by paying part of Weisselberg's salary with untaxed benefits, including a Mercedes-Benz and a luxury apartment. The judge also set a trial date for October, and it could have been lengthy. Now two people familiar with the case say a plea deal is in the works, and court records show a hearing was just added for Thursday in the case. A deal could mean Weisselberg receives a light sentence without agreeing to cooperate with prosecutors. The criminal case against Trump's company remains unresolved. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Oil prices are at a six-month low today, plunging more than 3 percent. As NPR's Arzu Resvani reports, where prices go next depends on confidence in the economy and nuclear negotiations with Iran. Oil prices are returning to levels not seen since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The drop in prices comes amid troubling economic data and concerns around a potential global recession. Data from China this week show its economy unexpectedly slowed last month as parts of the country remain under under COVID lockdowns. At the same time, Europe's final push to restore a nuclear deal with Iran, which would allow for more Iranian oil exports, could further increase global supplies and lower prices. Arzu Razvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. Walmart is reporting better than expected second quarter earnings, even as some customers appear to be looking to cut costs on groceries as inflation continues to hit consumers in the pocketbook. Walmart, which along with groceries, sells a host of other items, managing to take in $5.15 billion for its latest quarter, while ahead of analyst estimates. A mix close on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 239 points. The Nasdaq closed down 25 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Elected leaders representing Boston's Chinatown are asking the MBTA to provide the neighborhood with shuttle bus service during the upcoming Orange Line shutdown. Starting Friday night, the Orange Line will close for a month for repairs and safety upgrades. The T is planning to have shuttles at all but four stops along the Orange Line. The T says it's not possible to run a shuttle through Chinatown. Addressing the safety problems at the MBTA are priorities for the three Democrats running for lieutenant governor. They debated on WBUR's Radio Boston today and were asked how to fix the T. WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports. All three candidates seemed united. I think the MBTA has an F right now. It's literally setting on fire. A D, it's crashing and burning. The T is definitely not passing right now. State Rep Tammy Gavea said she worries about what comes next. It's concerning from a bigger perspective. State Senator Eric Lesser pledged to put riders first while also looking from the top down. I think there are big questions about the leadership at the T. And Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll says she's also thinking about morale among MBTA staff. They're not responsible for the current situation, but they are living through it. All agreed increasing safety on the system needs to be centered in any solution. The candidates will face each other in the primary next month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. 
Worcester County is the latest part of Massachusetts to warn about the presence of an animal tranquilizer in illegal drugs. Officials say the substance, known as xylazine, is increasingly being mixed with cocaine, heroin, and fentanyl. DA Joe Early says that could increase overdose deaths. Last month, it showed up in more than half of the drug samples tested in western Massachusetts. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is celebrating the federal government's decision to allow people to buy some hearing aids without a prescription. The senator co-authored a bill to make the change, and today the FDA finished the process to implement it. Warren says over-the-counter sales will make the devices more accessible to those with mild to moderate hearing loss. In sports, Red Sox open a three-game set with the Pirates in Pittsburgh tonight. And our weather forecast, clouds tonight, maybe showers later on. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Tomorrow, some lingering scattered showers in the morning, cloudy for the rest of the day. Highs will be near 70 degrees and sunshine Thursday with temperatures in the 80s. 75 right now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Inflation Reduction Act is a package that Democrats have been working on for years, covering climate change, drug prices, and taxes, among other things. Today, President Biden signed it into law. This is the third major legislative package that the Biden administration has gotten over the finish line. He signed the American Rescue Plan into law just a couple months after taking office, followed by a major infrastructure bill last fall, which both of the last two presidents had failed to do. To put this record into context, we are joined now by Mike Grunwald. He's author of The New New Deal. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Oh, thanks for having me, Ari. It's so difficult for anyone to wrap their head around the idea of trillions of dollars of spending. How impactful do you expect these collectively to be on the day-to-day lives of most Americans? Well, we've already seen that the American Rescue Plan really did have a huge impact at a time when the economy was really quite moribund and COVID was really raging. It was really extraordinary the way it really reduced poverty and not only didn't we have a depression, it was an incredibly short recession. So that really worked. And, you know, some people would argue it worked too well and it helped create some of the inflation sort of overheating the economy. The infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, I think, you know, the jury's still out. Those are 10-year bills. You know, we'll see how the implementation goes, but they certainly have the potential to really transform the American economy. And not a single Republican has supported it. So it turns out for all of our, you know, kind of digging into the details and having these arguments about how best to approach these things, it turned out to be a really partisan question. And the Democrats had the votes, and so they were able to do something. And if they had one fewer vote, they wouldn't have been able to do anything. We're talking about these three big legislative packages, but we should note there have also been lots of smaller accomplishments. Congress passed a law to manufacture computer chips in the U.S., one that expanded veterans' benefits. There was a gun regulation package. What do you think the secret is here? 
Look, I don't cover the day-to-day -day of politics the way I used to, but I did know Joe Biden really well, <laughs> less so when he was in the Senate, but especially when he was a vice president. And he talked all the time about how he knows the Senate, he knows Washington, he knows how to get deals done. In the Obama administration, he was kind of the go-to negotiator. Mitch McConnell got tired of talking to everybody else. He wanted to talk to Biden because he thought they could do business together. And I think... You'd have to say that at some level, he's been able to do business, um, even if hmm. largely on the Inflation Reduction Act, certainly he kind of left it to the Senate to iron out the details. But whatever he's doing, he's getting stuff done in a very difficult political environment. I remember some early press conferences soon after he took office when he was asked tough questions about how he'd accomplish his agenda. And he said, if there's one thing I know how to do, it's work with Congress, because that's what I spent most of my career doing. And Sounds like you're saying that wasn't just talk. Well, I, I will say I've had long talks with uh, Vice President Biden, where I'm sure many reporters have, when he was talking about, oh, you know, he, he told stories about how Mike Mansfield used to teach him back, you know, 40 years ago, that you should never question another politician's motives and you should always try to find common ground. And I've got to admit, I was sort of eye rolling a little bit when he was telling some of these stories about, you know, his relationships with racists like Strom Thurmond and, and Jesse Helms. But the fact is, when Joe Manchin suddenly became the pariah of the left for killing this you know, what was then Build Back Better, and everybody was screaming at him and calling him a shill for the coal industry, and, you know, he should be kicked out of the Democratic Party and stripped of his committee chairmanships. You didn't really hear President Biden talking about that at all. And he kept very quiet, and he's a believer in the backroom deal. And ultimately, he got that backroom deal, and that's the difference between, you know, zero dollars for the climate and $370 billion. Journalist Mike Grunwald is author of The New New Deal, and he hosts the Climavores podcast. Great to talk to you again. Thanks. Thanks so much, Ari. The January 6th committee hearings painted an elaborate and often damning portrait of former President Donald Trump's role in the insurrection. But race is also playing a central, if sometimes unspoken, role. NPR's Sandia Dirks has more. There's this striking moment back at the very beginning of the hearings in Senator Benny Thompson's opening statement. I'm from a part of the country where people justify the actions of slavery, the Ku Klux Klan, and lynching. I'm reminded of that dark history as I hear voices today try and justify the actions of the insurrectionists on January 6, 2021. Thompson draws a direct line from the lost cause to the big lie. Hakeem Jefferson, a political scientist at Stanford, says Thompson's very presence as an elder black Southern man at the helm of the hearings holds meaning. To see someone who looks like Benny Thompson wield this amount of institutional power against a person like Donald Trump, who is awashed and the markings of whiteness and privilege and all that it affords. Whiteness, Jefferson says, is at the center of the events this hearing is interrogating. January the 6th was a racial backlash. More precisely, he says, it's part of an ongoing white backlash against the very perception of racial progress. Some white people are really concerned about a loss of power and status in American society. At the heart of January 6th, Jefferson says, is a story about power, 
white power. It's not about power that's maintained by burning crosses. It's about power that's maintained about telling some stories and not some others in schools. It's about the power to elect people who you think will do your bidding. Over on Fox News, hosts like Tucker Carlson, who has peddled almost every conspiracy and lie about January 6, have consistently said that race or racism has nothing to do with it. Here he is in June, after falsely implying that the election could very well have been stolen. A lot of the protesters on January 6th were very upset about that. And they should have been. All of us should be. But the January 6th committee ignored all of that completely. Instead, on the basis of zero evidence, no evidence whatsoever, they blamed the entire riot on white supremacy. Of course, the January 6th committee hasn't really done that. The hearings haven't mentioned race much. And it is a central part of their case that rioters showed up precisely because they believed Trump's lie about a stolen election. But who believed that lie and why they believed it has everything to do with race, says Robert Pape, director of the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats. What we're really observing are the consequences of the fear of white status decline. Pape has been researching those who were arrested for storming the Capitol. He says they don't fit the old profiles of extremism. The counties that lost the most non-Hispanic white population are the counties that produced the most January 6th insurrectionists. Most are white and male, but more than half are white-collar, doctors, lawyers, and they come from cities and suburbs, many from places Biden won. Pape says his research shows that a driving force among insurrectionists and those that support them is a fear of a white majority becoming a minority and having to give up power. These are the parts of the country where diversity is happening the fastest. This is dovetailing with rhetoric by politicians and and by media figures, stoking fear about the Great Replacement. To put it simply, they came from places that used to be almost all white and aren't anymore. Nearly 90 percent are not members of these militant extremist groups. That's the racist conspiracy theory that black and brown people are replacing white people as part of a nefarious democratic plan to take power and steal elections, a theory peddled by people like Tucker Carlson. And it's believed not just by many of the people who stormed the Capitol, but by the vast majority of Republicans. Here's political scientist Hakeem Jefferson again. What's dangerous is when a group like this begins to adopt the mindset or the rhetoric of an oppressed minority. Dangerous because Jefferson says when members of a group that still holds very real privilege, like white people, imagine themselves on the margins, that's when violent white nationalism takes hold. The narrative the January 6th committee has presented, for the most part, has been told in the voices of Republicans and former Trump loyalists. There was one notable exception, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss. I've always um, been told by my grandmother how important it is to vote and how people before me, a lot of people, um, older people in my family did not have that right. Moss and her mom are both poll workers who Trump attacked by name, leading to death threats and racist attacks. Political scientist Akeem Jefferson says what these two women represent is not a political party or a person in power, but the right of average people to vote a right that for many was only achieved within recent memory. So many Black people and Black women in particular work on these front lines of democracy. 
Jefferson says our fragile and incomplete multiracial democracy is in peril. It's not just January 6th. It's also a slow-moving threat from the right, the Supreme Court, gerrymandering voter suppression laws, like some of the ones now on the books in Georgia, overseen by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He was lauded at the hearings for standing up for democracy and against Trump, but back home, the laws he's championed have made it harder for people of color to vote. January the 6th was a racial project, but the everyday undoings and attacks on American democracy are also a part of a racial project. So, yeah, it's the elephant in the room, but it's the whole damn room. This is all about race all the time. It continues a larger, longer battle that has never really ended over whose votes get counted and whose votes get to count. I'm Cynthia Dirks, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Just ahead on All Things Considered, some hearing aids could be available over the counter as early as this fall. It's 19 minutes past five. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org. In business news, another large employer in the Boston area is exploring giving up some of its office space as more people continue to work remotely. HubSpot tells the Boston Business Journal it's considering subleasing parts of its Cambridge headquarters. It says it's part of a process to assess the company's space needs. Bose recently put its Boston office space up for sublease and moved some in-person workers to its headquarters in Framingham. On Wall Street, there were some mixed results. Today, the Dow rose seven tenths of a percent to close at 34,152. Nasdaq fell two tenths of a percent, and the S&P 500 gained two tenths of a percent. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6:30. It's 5:20. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com/gig and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. In our forecast, clouds tonight, a few showers later on, temperatures in the 60s. Tomorrow, scattered showers, highs around 70. Sunny Thursday and Friday, temperatures both days in the 80s. 75 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. People with mild or moderate hearing loss should be able to buy hearing aids over the counter as soon as mid-October, and they will not need a doctor's exam or a prescription to buy them. That's because of a new rule from the Food and Drug Administration designed to make hearing aids more accessible and ultimately more affordable for many consumers. NPR's Maria Godoy reports. Hearing loss affects more than 40 million Americans, according to recent estimates, but the vast majority of them don't have hearing aids, even though they need them. A lot of that is because of hearing aids being really expensive. Dr. Frank Lynn is a professor of otolaryngology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I mean, the average cost of pair of hearing aids can be, you know, around $4,000. And that cost is often not covered by insurance. Lynn says one factor behind the high prices is that, until now, hearing aids were regulated as medical devices that could only be bought from a licensed provider, like an audiologist. That limited the number of companies manufacturing hearing aids. He says consumer tech companies that already make earbuds with similarly sophisticated components couldn't enter the market. We've had this very constrained market where essentially you have five manufacturers that control about 95% of the world's hearing aid marketplace. But Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra says new FDA rules are designed to change that. Today, the FDA opens the door to quality, affordable hearing aids to consumers over the counter. Uh, And the operative word here is over the counter. The rules create a new class of hearing aids that can be sold in retail stores and online without a prescription or special evaluations. Brian Deese, White House Director of the National Economic Council, says the goal is to make it easier for more manufacturers to enter the market and encourage competition. We expect that that competition will drive down costs. Uh, In fact, the FDA estimates this rule will save consumers on the order of about $1,400 per individual hearing aid or over $2,800 per pair. But ultimately, advocates say the new rule change isn't just about business innovation. Frank Lynn of Johns Hopkins says research shows hearing loss can have profound impacts on health. Not being able to hear well or hearing only garbled sounds can lead to social isolation, and it may also cause changes to the brain. Hearing loss is arguably the dominant risk factor for dementia. The actual fact of hearing loss, that auditory deprivation of the brain, could actually lead to parts of the brain shrinking and, and atrophying faster because it's being, it's, it's being stimulated less. But these are risk factors that may potentially be lessened by a good hearing aid. Maria Godoy, NPR News. When Jade Kearney had her first daughter in 2017, she felt totally prepared. She had a doula, and she was clear with her doctor about not wanting to die during pregnancy. Kearney is a Black woman, and she knows the statistics well. For example, Black women are more than three times more likely to die during pregnancy than white women. But the real work started for me the moment I left the hospital. I had crippling postpartum anxiety. Um, in the form of intrusive thoughts about harming my daughter. Jade Kearney turned to friends and family for help, and she got nowhere. I felt like I was failing the cultural norms of suffering in silence, and I knew I wasn't going to get any help from friends and family at that point because mental health is a huge cultural stigma in the Black community. And so from there, I went to my healthcare provider and My physician's words were, hey, a lot of women get this. I'm going to send you Zoloft. I have breached twins. I'll check back in with you in six weeks. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm just like, no one is talking to me. No one is helping me. 
and I felt lost. I felt alone. That experience inspired Jade Kearney to launch She Matters. It's a digital platform designed to address postpartum depression and other comorbidities of Black mothers. The way we support our Black mothers is through connecting Black mothers to culturally competent healthcare providers that go through our training, offering them community to validate those experiences, and giving culturally relevant resources. Um, my co-founder likes to say you can find more about the mental illness within dogs than black women. We just don't mm -hmm. have enough stats that relate to us. You've mentioned a couple times the idea of cultural competence in the healthcare setting, and I can say I've certainly run into problems with that myself. But for people who may not understand what you mean when you're talking about the importance of culturally competent care, can you just give us an example? An example is when a black mom is experiencing stress, she might say, God spoke to me and I really feel like I should be here. Some therapist, a psychiatrist, may feel like she's having psychosis. But in the Black community, to say that you're speaking to a higher power is actually very normal. And it's a part of our spirituality. So being able to be culturally competent is like to plug in to colloquialisms and, and build your lexicon and be able to communicate with Black folks from a place um, that they are familiar with so they can get the best care. I'm hoping that you can share a success story with us. One example of how She Matters has helped a Black woman navigate the system, the experience of motherhood and postpartum effectively or to navigate it well. I can give you a story of a woman in Maryland, actually, who had terrible pelvic pain uh, during sexual intercourse and had gone to her doctor many, many times. And her doctor started to say, this is in your mind. You're not really ex experiencing this pain and offered her immediately an antidepressant. She would cry about this. She would talk to her husband. It was creating problems within their marriage. We paired her with an OBGYN who was culturally competent. And it turns out she had a huge cyst that was creating the pain. So it just took somebody listening, just listening and believing her to get her the help that she needed. And this is the story that we hear more often than not. When I hear that, that is, uh, you, you actually were able to take this one woman, this patient in Maryland, and connect her with a different medical provider than the one that she had previously been seeing. That sounds like a pretty labor-intensive intervention and support. Is that the common level of assistance that Black mothers receive through She Matters? It is. So it's it's not too difficult. We have a bunch of culturally competent healthcare providers within our network, and we it goes by state. So we just connect you with one. Right now, you are focused on the experiences that Black women have in the healthcare system, but I can imagine there may be people from other backgrounds, other expectant parents who are hearing the conversation that you and I are having and wondering if one day there will be a platform like She Matters that serves their communities. Do you have plans to expand it further? Yes. At the end of the year, She Matters will turn into We Matter, and She Matters will be product one. Ella Importa, which is She Matters in Spanish, will be product two. Native Her will be product three. And They Matter will be product four. And so Ella Importa is for Hispanic women. Um, Native Her is for Native and Indigenous women. And They Matter is for the LGBTQ plus trans community. 
Jade Kearney is the CEO and co-founder of She Matters. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, voting rights advocates warn about a theory that claims state lawmakers should have almost unchecked power over federal elections. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. Do you get enough exercise? Answer, probably no, because a new study finds that the standard recommendation of two and a half hours a week of exercise may not be enough. You might need twice as much exercise to live a long, healthy life. But who's got the time? I like to tell people, even if you're cleaning your house, if you do it really fast, it could be on the vigorous end. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.N. Secretary General is heading to Ukraine this week to try to keep a vital program on track to get grain exports out of the country. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Secretary General Antonio Guterres plans to visit Lviv, where he will meet Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky and Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Turkey helped negotiate the deal that has begun to get Ukrainian food shipments out of the country. Guterres will also visit the Ukrainian port of Odessa and stop in Turkey before returning to New York. Russia is not on the trip schedule, though the U.N. leader spoke by phone with Russia's defense minister. Those talks touched on Russian food exports, as well as concerns about the fighting around a Ukrainian nuclear plant. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A former Democratic congressman from California is facing a federal indictment on fraud and other charges. Terrence T.J. Cox faces 28 counts in all. As NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. Terrence T.J. Cox is a former one-term congressman who served California's 21st district. He lost his re-election bid in 2020. Now he's been charged with 15 counts of wire fraud, 11 counts of money laundering, as well as financial institution fraud and campaign contribution fraud. Prosecutors say Cox carried out various schemes targeting companies he was affiliated with and created off-the-books bank accounts into which he siphoned company and client money. Cox also allegedly fraudulently obtained a $1.5 million loan that later went into default. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Home Depot reported a record second quarter profit boosted by continued demand for home improvement items. While the number of customer transactions fell slightly, sales at Home Depot, stores open for at least a year, were up nearly 6%. Stocks finished mixed today on Wall Street. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants the city to ban fossil fuels in new construction. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, the mayor says the restriction will help transition the city toward renewable energy and net zero emissions. 
The new climate law Governor Baker signed this month allows 10 cities and towns to implement a ban as a pilot project. Wu said today she's filing a home rule petition to get Boston on the list. Our city is ready to join this pilot program to understand and lay out how banning new fossil fuel hookups can benefit our cities, our state, and our country. Other major U.S. cities have already moved to ban fossil fuel hookups in new buildings, including New York City and Washington, D.C. Opponents of the idea say it can make housing more expensive. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Transit agencies in Massachusetts, including the MBTA, are getting millions of federal dollars to convert their diesel fleets to battery-powered or hybrid electric buses. The T is in line for $116 million from the Federal Transit Administration to replace older buses. Regional transit authorities in the Pioneer Valley, the Berkshires, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, and the South Coast will also receive funding. The Biden administration says it's part of an effort to nearly double the number of clean transit buses across the country. MBTA and state officials are warning of severe traffic during the month-long shutdown of the Orange Line that starts Friday night. WBUR's Dave Faniff spoke about this with Jim Rooney of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce. Rooney says the language being used by state officials to avoid the region altogether if possible until the shutdown is over will have a significant impact, especially on small businesses that are just getting back on their feet from the pandemic. And now they get punched in the gut with news like this. So you can't help but feel for small businesses. And I suspect that their cash flows are not such that they can easily absorb a month of either loss or significantly lower revenue. Rooney says companies need to be flexible with workers who have to commute into Boston. They're likely going to be late for work much more frequently than is routine until the shutdown ends. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. The president of a union local representing Transportation Security Administration workers has been sentenced on federal fraud charges. 59-year-old Marie LeClaire of Lynn was convicted on charges of taking money from union accounts and depositing it into personal accounts. She was sentenced to six months home confinement, three years probation. She must also pay $29,000. In sports, Red Sox open a three-game set with the Pirates in Pittsburgh tonight and our weather forecast clouds a chance of showers tonight temperatures in the mid 60s tomorrow few scattered showers in the morning it should be mostly cloudy later in the day highs will be around 70 degrees Thursday sunny temperatures in the 80s and looks like sunshine Friday Saturday and Sunday a bit warmer on the weekend with temperatures getting into the upper 80s 75 degrees right now in Boston Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A controversial legal theory is going before the U.S. Supreme Court during its next term. Depending on how the court rules, this theory could radically reshape future federal elections. And voting rights advocates warn it may help state lawmakers try to subvert presidential contests. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang has been looking into a conservative group that is one of this theory's most vocal supporters. Hey, Hansi. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so what is this theory? It's known as the Independent State Legislature Theory, and it claims the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures almost unchecked power over how federal elections are run. To be clear, state lawmakers would still have to follow the U.S. Constitution and federal laws passed by Congress, but this theory claims the power of state legislatures over elections for Congress and for president cannot be checked and balanced by state constitutions or state courts. And I have to say, many legal experts have considered this to be a fringe legal claim. Um, okay, so that's the theory. Who is the group, this conservative group that, that's all in on this theory that you've been reporting on? It calls itself the Honest Elections Project. It's been advocating for more restrictive voting laws. And what's interesting is that this group's name has been registered in Virginia since 2020 as a business alias for another group that's linked with a major influencer of the Supreme Court. This group is called the 85 Fund. It has millions of dollars in donations and spending that are hard to trace. And it has ties to Leonard Leo, who's the chairman, a co-chairman of the Federalist Society and has worked for decades to get more conservatives onto this U.S. Supreme Court, help build the court's current supermajority of conservative justices. And over the past couple of years, the 85 Fund, also known as the Honest Elections Project, has filed multiple legal briefs to the Supreme Court trying to influence the justices' thinking specifically on this independent state legislature theory. And what do these briefings say? What, what are they saying in their filings to the Supreme Court? These briefings have been urging the justices to weigh in on exactly how much power state legislatures have over rules for federal elections. Back in 2020, the Honest Elections Project filed a legal brief in a case about whether the Pennsylvania Supreme Court could extend the deadline for receiving mail ballots. This year, the group filed a brief in a case about whether North Carolina lawmakers could step in and defend a state law about voter IDs in a lawsuit. And again, the Honest Elections Project, their main argument in these briefs is that when it comes to rules for presidential and congressional elections, state legislatures, they argue, have almost unfettered authority. I talked to the group's executive director, Jason Need. Let's listen. And I think it's something which we, we need to get a definitive answer to. When the Constitution says legislatures write the laws that govern our democracy, is that what it means or does it mean something else? But here's the thing. Many legal scholars point out state legislatures are the products of and are limited by their state's constitutions. And the U.S. Supreme Court has long deferred to state courts on how to interpret state constitutions and laws. And, you know, all this is at the heart of this major upcoming redistricting case about the theory. It's another lawsuit out of North Carolina, and the justices are expected to hear it during their term that starts this October. Okay, so I'm trying to keep the cases straight. You said this group has filed a brief in in another uh, uh, case that was before the court about voter IDs. Have they weighed in on this this redistricting case out of North Carolina yet? 
Not yet, but they say they're planning to do so because this is a closely watched case, mainly because if the Supreme Court ultimately decides to endorse this theory, it could bring a lot of chaos to upcoming elections with a potential surge of lawsuits challenging, for example, you know, existing state Supreme Court rulings on election rules. It could make it easier to gerrymander maps of voting districts. And so it's likely that a lot of groups will want to weigh in to send legal briefs to the Supreme Court about this North Carolina redistricting case before the court's expected decision is out by next summer. Thank you, Hansi. You're welcome. That is NPR's Hansi Lo Wong. In 1973, Marlon Brando won the Oscar for Best Actor for playing Don Corleone in The Godfather. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Brando sent someone else to the Oscars, and that caused a huge stir. And now the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is trying to make it up to the woman who was his stand-in. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports. Marlon Brando was very vocal about his support for Native Americans who are protesting their historic mistreatment. At the time, in 1973, members of the American Indian Movement had occupied the town of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. To bring awareness to their standoff with federal agents, Brando decided to use his platform at the Oscars. In his place, he sent a friend, a 26-year-old actress and activist. My name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. Wearing a buckskin dress and moccasins, Littlefeather calmly waved away the Oscar statuette. She announced that Brando respectfully declined the award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. Little Feather was interrupted by boos and some cheers from the audience. Now in her 70s, she recalled her Oscars moment. People were making money off of that racism of the Hollywood Indian. Of course, they're going to boo. They don't want their evening interrupted. That's what she told KQED Radio in 2020, and she repeated her story to the Academy on their official podcast this summer. Littlefeather recalled that actor John Wayne, who played a cowboy in countless Western films, had been incensed. He attempted to assault me on stage. He had to be restrained by six security men in order to prevent him from doing exactly that. Those details were supported by Academy officials. Littlefeather said she was escorted off stage by a team of security guards, and for years, she said, Hollywood boycotted her. She called it being red-listed. I have a friend who was with a particular studio, and she told me, Sasheen, the FBI were just here, and they told us that if we would ever hire you, they would shut us down, shut our production down. So there were lies that were printed about me in the press, said I rented my buckskin dress, that I was an Indian, I was a Mexican actress, that it was all a publicity stunt. In June, David Rubin, then president of the Academy, sent Littlefeather a letter of apology. He wrote the harassment and discrimination she suffered was, quote, unwarranted and unjustified. 
Filmmaker Bird Runningwater co-chairs the Academy's Indigenous Alliance. You know, it's really the beginning of a larger reconciliation that really needs to happen between, you know, our American film industry for the 100 plus years of misrepresentation and erasure of Native people in American popular culture. Runningwater points to the recent success of TV shows starring and made by Indigenous talent, Reservation Dogs and Rutherford Falls, and the film Prey. The moment we're having now is something that she and our filmmaking community had always dreamed of 50 years ago. Sasheen Littlefeather's 1973 speech is featured at the Academy's Museum, where she'll be the guest of honor at an event next month. It's billed as an evening of conversation, reflection, healing, and celebration. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. Today, federal water managers announced additional water cuts for some southwestern states that rely on the Colorado River. More than 40 million people depend on that river system for drinking water, hydroelectric power, and agriculture. But historic drought has pushed the river to record lows, and after the first-ever declaration of a shortage last year, the crisis has only deepened. Here to tell us more is Alex Hager of KUNC in Greeley, Colorado. Hey there. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi. So the government's announcement today had two parts. They gave us an update on water levels, and then they announced more cuts. What are the headlines on both of those? Well, when it comes to water levels, the basic message is things are worse. Uh, For example, the water level in Lake Mead, which is one of the most important reservoirs on the Colorado River, it is critically low. If it keeps getting lower, it would lose the ability to generate hydropower. It could get so low that water could no longer pass through the dam. So the cuts are an effort to keep some water in the reservoir and prevent that from happening. The federal government announced that two states and Mexico are going to receive less water starting in 2023. Arizona's amount is going to be reduced by 21 percent, Nevada's by 8, and Mexico's by 7 percent. That's not insignificant. How, How are the cuts expected to affect those areas? Yeah, you know, realistically, They are not as drastic as they might seem, uh, especially in Arizona, where they're going to see the steepest cuts. Local water agencies are doing a lot to soften the blow. They've got enough water stored as a backup that farms and homes won't really feel those cuts for five to ten years in a lot of cases. And after that, it will depend on what happens as more permanent negotiations about water get settled. It's also important to remember that these cuts were expected. Water levels have been dropping steadily for years now. And the cuts we're seeing today were actually agreed upon in 2019. They were just triggered by dropping water levels. Meanwhile, Alex, today was also the deadline for the seven states that use the Colorado River to come up with a plan for big reductions in their water use, did they? Well, in June of this year, the the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation said states had to conserve two to four million acre feet of water. And they had just two months to sort out a plan to do that. Today was the deadline, and no, they just do not have a plan put together. Uh, The federal government had threatened to step in and force them to make big cuts if the states couldn't come up with a plan themselves. But at today's announcement, the feds didn't really seem ready to do that. They said they would keep working with states to get a plan in place. 
but they did not specify any new measures they might take to force conservation. And let's be clear here, the the Colorado River crisis, it is not going to get solved with little cuts and reductions here and there. It is going to take big agreements and some uncomfortable sacrifices from the seven states that use the water. Right. I mean, just take a step back. Give us a little bit of the history. How did things get to this point? Yeah, the Colorado River, it serves a growing region, so you've got a lot of people trying to get a slice of that pie, but the pie itself is getting smaller. We are into over two decades of drought. It is the worst one that the region has seen in 1,800 years. You know, obviously you're going to get some wet years, you're going to get some dry years, but this drought that we're in right now, it is so bad because it's being accelerated by climate change. It is warmer, it is drier, and there is less water to go around. Alex Hager of KUNC reporting from Greeley Forest. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a conversation with children's book writer Celia Perez about her new book titled Tumble. Our forecast, a chance of showers tonight, clouds as well, temperatures in the 60s. Tomorrow, scattered showers, highs near 70 degrees. For Thursday, it'll be mostly sunny with highs in the 80s. Friday, sunny, temperatures in the 80s. In the weekend, sunny and warm, temperatures both days in the upper 80s. It is 73 degrees in Boston at 11 minutes before 6. It was heartbreaking, but also baffling. Why would the Taliban do this? You know, why announce the schools would reopen only to reverse themselves the last minute like this? I'm Natalie Kitroeff. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. What does it mean to grow up Latino in small-town New Mexico? Author Celia Perez says she writes to challenge assumptions about that. In her work, she creates multi-dimensional communities. In media, I think we're typically represented as, you know, we're big and boisterous, and there's this extended family of abuelos and aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, And that wasn't my experience growing up. And in her new book, Tumble, Celia Perez explores just that. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. So in this book, when we first meet Adela Ramirez, who's the main character, she is having breakfast and bonding over luchadores and wrestling with her stepdad, Alex. Her mom is pregnant with a new baby, and Alex wants to officially adopt Addie. Tell us some more about Addie. So Addie is a 12-year-old who lives in a small town in New Mexico, and she lives with her mom and her uh, stepfather. Her, Her stepfather and mom have recently married and she has never really thought about her biological father um, before. Her stepfather makes this pretty life-changing proposal, and uh, that prompts her to start thinking about who this person is. She has no memory of meeting him and, um, and doesn't know his identity. Uh, so that sort of kicks off this journey that we go on with this um, 
person who's trying to figure out who, you know, who she is in the, in the context of who her father is, who this unknown figure in her life is. And so we follow her through, through her story as she discovers who he is and realizes that she comes from this background of uh, Mexican-American uh, wrestlers, luchadores, and tries to make a connection with her father and with this extended family that she meets. And wrestling plays such a big part of this story. I got to ask you, were you a wrestling fan growing up? I was a huge wrestling fan. I I was like obsessive about wrestling. Um, it's funny because writing this book, I, I looked back on uh, one of my diaries from when I was in the seventh or eighth grade, and it was pretty much all just recaps of weekend <laughs> wrestling, <laughs> wrestling shows. Um, so yes, uh, I just wanted to kind of revisit this thing that was such a big part of my, of my childhood. Did you have a favorite wrestler growing up? Oh yeah. Um, I had a lot of favorites. Um, there was a, a family of wrestlers in Texas, the Von Ericks, and the oldest brother, Kevin was my favorite. He wrestled barefoot and, um, I always thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, and he had, uh, he had brothers and his, his father, uh, was a wrestler and they were probably my, my very favorites. Now, I don't want to give away too many of the secrets in your book, but the other thing that came through really strongly in here was there's, this is also a story about women and wrestling. And I love that. What made you want to explore that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, when I start writing, I, I don't typically start with, um, you know, a list of things that I definitely want to hit on. Uh, I, I like to think that what happens throughout the story just kind of comes organically as I'm writing. And um, one of the people that Addie meets her abuela, her, her grandmother, Rosie, who was a professional wrestler. Um, you know, women have been involved in wrestling for, you know, forever, for as long as men. But as is usually the case, they don't typically get the press or the respect that men get. And so I thought it would be interesting to, um, to bring in these characters that are also very, very central to wrestling and um, give her, you know, a, a, a view of, of this um, thing that is so much a part of this family that she's never known. This is all happening at a moment in Addie's life. She's in middle school in seventh grade. And that's a point where kids are really starting to come into their own and differentiate themselves from their parents. And she sees throughout the course of this book that the, the grownups in her life, they also have faults and fears and they don't always have all the answers or not the right answers. You know, it's funny when I write, I always I always see myself as both um, the kid and the adult, uh, because I think I am both of those. <laughs> I, I I like to write um, adult characters that don't have all the answers, that admit that um, they are wrong, because I think that is a realistic portrayal of adulthood. And um, I know as a parent, sometimes it's hard to admit those things to my child. Oh, yeah. You know, I was wrong. <laughs> you were right. Um, and kids, you know, I think kids definitely pick up on that. I remember being a kid and, and picking up on those things. And so um, I, I try to write adult characters that um, I think are realistic and are flawed um, and reflect reality. The other thing that plays a really big role in the story is the library. And I know that you are a librarian and Addie and her best friend kind of experience the magic of the library, the types of things you can uncover when you go. What made that such an important place in this book? 
So in this story, they uh, they visit the historical society in their town and they learn about what a historical society is and what special collections are and what archives are. Um, and I think all of that, like the exploration, the, the process of discovery for them was, was fun to write. Um, but it also, it also served as, as um, I think, kind of a lesson in learning more about um, what cultural um, centers like archives and museums, uh, what they do um, in our in our society. And um, I think it, it's a way for me to um, kind of bring up questions about whose stories get told and what gets preserved. So um, one of the things that um, Addie does not to give away too much of the story is she adds something to her um, town's uh, historical society that that wasn't there before and that she thought was an important story to to have included. When you thought about putting this book together, who were you keeping in mind that you would hope would pick it up one day and read it? Hmm. Um, I'm always, uh, I think, in part writing to for the kid that I was, um, who was always reading, 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 and not seeing characters that look like me in stories. And so when I write now, I think that is usually who I am thinking of as well today, um, is kids who are looking for um, stories that represent them, um, maybe culturally or racially. I don't know if normalize is the word, but when I write, I think I'm, I'm always kind of in the back of my head thinking about normalizing stories that um, that include brown characters, but that aren't necessarily about struggle or about um, identity specifically. We have been talking with Celia Perez. Her latest book is Tumble. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches. Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 7 o'clock tonight here on WBUR, it's On Point. And on the show tonight, a new study that says you may need to exercise twice as much as currently recommended to get health benefits.
In our weather forecast, clouds move in tonight, showers probably later on, temperatures in the 60s. Tomorrow, scattered showers, highs near 70 degrees. For Thursday, it should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the 80s. And Friday, sunshine, highs in the 80s. Looks like the weekend will be sunny and warm. Temperatures Saturday and Sunday in the upper 80s. 73 degrees in Boston at 6 o'clock. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden signs into law the Inflation Reduction Act. It addresses climate change, drug prices, and taxes. It's Tuesday, August 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, assessing violent threats against the FBI after the search of former President Trump's home in Florida. The reason why they're actively talking about crimes they're planning on committing is because they don't think they're committing a crime. Also, families of Ukrainian soldiers held by Russia search for information after a deadly explosion at the prison where the soldiers were in custody. Plus, colleges prepare for monkeypox. On Wall Street, stocks were mixed today. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. It's 6.01. First, a look at this hour's news. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After more than a year of deadlocked efforts, President Biden has signed a sweeping climate, tax, and health care bill. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the new law is a major victory for the White House and congressional Democrats ahead of the November midterms. The landmark legislation will pump billions of dollars into fighting climate change and lowering health care costs. Speaking from the White House, President Biden said the new law will bring long overdue savings for middle income families. Thousands of dollars in savings by providing them rebates to buy new and efficient appliances, weatherize their homes, get tax credit for purchasing heat pumps and rooftop solar, electric stoves, ovens, dryers. Economists have said the bill will put the downward pressure on inflation eventually by reducing the federal deficit by an estimated $300 billion over the next decade. In the coming weeks, Biden is expected to travel the country to highlight the specifics of the new law. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney is facing a primary challenge for her re-election in Wyoming today. NPR's Domenico Montanaro looks at her chances. Cheney is just one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach former President Donald Trump. She is now vice chair of the House Select January 6th committee investigating Trump's conduct on that day. That's landed her in hot water with Trump, who is backing Harriet Hageman over Cheney. Hageman has a substantial lead in the polls, so Cheney has been trying to appeal to Democrats to cross over and vote for her, but there likely are not enough Democrats in the state to keep her in office. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The White House says First Lady Joe Biden has tested positive for the coronavirus and is experiencing mild symptoms. 
Bureau's Asma Khalid reports. The First Lady is double vaccinated and twice boosted. Like her husband, President Biden, who first tested positive earlier last month, she's been prescribed a course of the antiviral drug Paxlovid. She plans to stay in South Carolina, where she had been vacationing with the president, and will not return home until she receives two consecutive negative COVID tests. That's according to a statement from her communications director. The president is deemed to be a close contact of the First Lady, and so the White House says he'll wear a mask for 10 days while indoors and in close proximity to other people. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Under a new rule announced today by the Food and Drug Administration, millions of Americans will be able to buy hearing aids online or over-the-counter without a prescription. The announcement coming from a group that included Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra. For many Americans uh, who suffer from hearing loss, safe and effective and high-quality hearing aids have been unaffordable. The decision comes after years of pressure to make the devices more accessible, less expensive, and easier to get. Devices for more severe hearing loss will provide a prescri- require a prescription, though. Stocks closed higher. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston is seeking to ban fossil fuels from new buildings in the city as it looks to limit natural gas as a heating source. Today, the city said it will seek state permission to become one of 10 communities in a pilot program to restrict new fossil fuel hookups. Dr. Bazolo Jakutu is executive director of the Boston Public Health Commission, and she says the proposal could lead to less pollution, heat-related illness and asthma. The work that we're doing to achieve climate justice will potentially mean fewer weather emergencies and fewer heat islands. So people in neighborhoods like Mattapan and Roxbury will be less likely to suffer heat-related illness. Ojukutu says emissions from burning fossil fuels are a significant health threat. Opponents say it will make housing even more expensive. Several Boston leaders say the team needs to reassess its plans for shuttle buses to bypass Chinatown during the month-long shutdown of the Orange Line that begins Friday. In a letter to the T today, Mayor Michelle Wu and City Council President Ed Flynn are among those who say the neighborhood needs to have at least one shuttle bus stop. Flynn says Chinatown has many immigrants, students, and people with disabilities who could find it tough to get around without better transportation alternatives. The lack of a bus shuttle stop at either Tufts Medical Center or Chinatown will make it extremely difficult for residents and workers in the area. We have to make sure that the residents of Chinatown are treated with respect and dignity. The T says it's not possible to run a shuttle through Chinatown. Massachusetts Attorney General and gubernatorial candidate Maura Healy is joining with 21 attorneys general to try to preserve abortion access in Idaho and Texas. The AGs have filed legal briefs that argue those states' efforts to ban abortion violate certain federal protections for emergency health care treatment. Healy says bans would put an additional strain on health systems in states like Massachusetts that protect abortion access. UMass Amherst won't have enough dorm space on campus for students this fall. The school says 120 transfer students will be provided housing in a hotel that's about 15 minutes away. UMass officials say a greater than expected number of returning students are opting to live on campus. 
A Dorchester man accused of selling drugs and illegally carrying a gun in the so-called Mass and Cass area of Boston is now being held without bail. The Suffolk County DA says Keon Leary was exploiting problems in the Mass and Cass area, which is known as a gathering place for people experiencing homelessness, addiction, and mental health issues. Leary has pleaded not guilty. In sports, Red Sox open a three-game set with the Pirates in Pittsburgh tonight. And our weather forecast, clouds move in tonight, a few showers as well. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Tomorrow, a few scattered showers, highs near 70. Sunny on Thursday, though, with highs in the 80s. 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. rwjf.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. An armed man was killed last week after trying to storm the FBI field office in Cincinnati. Federal prosecutors charged another man in Pennsylvania yesterday after he posted violent threats against FBI agents online. And U.S. authorities are now warning of an increase in threats to federal law enforcement after last week's court-authorized search of former President Trump's Florida home. But assessing which threats are credible and being able to respond to them is challenging. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef joins us now. Hi, Odette. Hey, Juana. So, Odette, what can you tell us about the level and volume of threats that we are seeing right now? Well, we're seeing lots of calls to violence, um, particularly on alt-tech social platforms like Gab, Truth Social, and Telegram. You know, the volume this time isn't at the level it was in the lead up to January 6th, but some are saying that it feels similar. You know, we've seen these calls for civil war before, but now people are saying it's here and it's time to act. I think what's notable now, Juana, is the specificity of the targets. You know, people are calling out the FBI, um, the FBI agents involved in the search by name and even their family members. And it's worth noting that there is a history of anti-government movements and mistrust of the FBI among certain extremist pockets in the U.S., but the degree to which these views have now been taken up by a much larger portion of Americans is what's causing concern. So it's not, you know, domestic extremists in the way that we've thought about them before. It's more like what we saw last week in Cincinnati, you know, someone who seemingly self-radicalized and who appears to have acted on his own. Okay. So where then does that leave law enforcement in assessing what is a threat and what is not? So this is where things are tricky. Um, first, it's just impossible to continually continually track the huge volume of posts across platforms. Um, But there are also some other factors that make this particular domestic threat difficult to stop. One of them is that law enforcement today pretty much has to act instantaneously on a tip in order to stop a suspected attack from happening. Here's Donnell Harvin from the Rand Corporation. He's the former chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for Washington, D.C. There is often a brief period of time between radicalization and mobilization of violence that law enforcement has an opportunity to interdict that individual. Um, and that brief moment is, is such a small window. We've seen where um, people go from radicalization to mobilization of violence very, very quickly. 
And Harvin points to last week's attempt in Cincinnati, where there was only a day or two between the individual's suspected online posts that indicated he was preparing for violence and when he actually attempted the attack. And that's really not much given the legal requirements for law enforcement to get involved. And what are those legal requirements? Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, this is probably the biggest hurdle that we're seeing in the countering extremism world today, Juana. You know, for context, you have to remember that much of that infrastructure was built in response to 9-11, where the idea was to interdict plots by foreign entities or people who were influenced by them. You know, today, attention is on the heightened threat from domestic extremists. And you just can't use those same tools because Americans enjoy certain free speech and due process rights under the Constitution. So what that means is that in order to initiate surveillance or an investigation, law enforcement needs to be able to provide evidence of a credible and specific threat to get the authorization they need. So details like when and where an attack might happen. And often, Juana, those details just aren't there. NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you. Sure thing. The soldiers known as the Azovstal defenders are heroes in Ukraine. They held out for months against the Russians, fighting from a bombed-out steel plant in the southern port city of Mariupol before becoming prisoners of war. Well, last month their prison was bombed, allegedly by their Russian captors. NPR's Joanna Kakissis spoke to some of these soldiers' families as they waited to find out whether the men were dead or alive. Olha Kerod was busy at work at a pharmacy in the western city of Lviv when she got a frantic call from her teenage daughter. My daughter said, Mom, something exploded in Alenivka. They blew up a building and many people died. Alenivka is a prison colony in Russian-occupied eastern Ukraine. Russia holds captured Ukrainian soldiers there. On July 29th, the day of the explosion, Olha's husband Stanislav, she calls him Stas for short, was in that prison. Everyone started calling me, texting me, asking, Olha, Olha, what has happened? There were at least 50 dead and scores more wounded. She worried that Stas was among them. But I didn't cry. I didn't panic. I told myself and my daughter, don't believe anything until we know for sure. Stas worked as a naval border guard in the southeastern port city of Mariupol, where the family lived. Olha had not seen him for six months since Russian forces bombed and shelled Mariupol, leaving thousands dead and nearly every building damaged. Stas joined several thousand soldiers who barricaded themselves beneath a sprawling local steelworks factory called Azovstal in a final last stand. The spring, NPR reached Stas there via WhatsApp. He sent us several voice memos describing the constant bombing and shelling, how they were running out of medicine and food, and how relieved he was that his own family had escaped Mariupol. We last heard from him in May when he and thousands of other soldiers left Azovstal in what they assumed was an evacuation. Instead, they were handed over to the Russians. His last text to NPR read, we are being evacuated into captivity. We met his wife Olha a couple of weeks later at a cafe in Lviv. She's dark-haired and intense. Over the next several weeks, we speak several times. She tells us she heard from Stas directly only once 
in June when he called her from a number she did not recognize. He told me the conditions inside the prison were terrible, that the prisoners were fed only once every two days, that hygiene was non-existent. Then, on July 29th, came the explosion. The blast destroyed a warehouse where prisoners had recently been moved. Images of charred bodies appeared on social media. Ukraine said Russian forces blew up the building to cover up torture of Ukrainian prisoners. Russia, in turn, accused Ukraine of killing its own soldiers to keep them from talking. It all made Olha's head spin. I didn't believe it that such a thing could happen, that even the Russians could do such a thing. Hundreds of miles east in Kyiv, Alla Samolenko was also shocked. She was desperate for news on her son, Ilya. Yes, I had only rumors, and it's very hard to tell about. Alla knew many soldiers from Ilya's regiment were in Alenovka. She pleaded with the International Committee for the Red Cross for help. And they very polite and full of mercy, you know. And after that, no connection, no feedback, no feedback. The Russians blocked the Red Cross and other independent investigators from entering the site of the explosion. They instead brought in their own experts who repeated Kremlin talking points, all false, that Ukraine and the U.S. were responsible. In cities across Ukraine, the families of the imprisoned soldiers took to the streets to demand information and justice. Yaroslava Ivantseva protested from her home in the central region of Kirovograd, where she now lives with her daughter and grandchildren after escaping the fall of Mariupol. Since the explosion, Yaroslava says she has spent hours scouring Russian social media channels for any details about her husband, Nikolai Ivansov, and her son-in-law, Oleksiy Lyashuk. She says someone sent her a message that Nikolai and Alexei were in the building in Elenivka that burned. I can't even begin to describe my reaction when I found out. I started to cry, and then I immediately got on the phone with Ukrainian military and government officials. But they said they had no information. A few days after the explosion, the Russian military published a list of dead and wounded. Ivansova saw her son-in-law's name on the list of injured. We started cold-calling hospitals in the occupied territories to find out which ones had taken the wounded. But unfortunately, we couldn't get any information. The hospitals only said they didn't have any Ukrainian soldiers there. But her husband's name was not on either list. Neither was Alla Samolenko's son, Ilya. The women have not heard from the soldiers. Allah says their fate seems unclear. I mean, they can kill all of them without any responsibility. And no one in the world can do something. Back in Lviv, Olha Kerod got better news. She finally heard from her husband, Stas. He wrote to say that he was alive, that he is tired and is wondering if people have forgotten about him and the other soldiers. Mm-hmm.
But the families of the soldiers clearly have not forgotten. Olha recently posted a video on Facebook of the soldiers singing in the catacombs of Azovstal before the final fall of their city, trapped underground and yet still free. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Lviv. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, colleges prepare for monkeypox. In business news, the operators of a nightclub at Encore Boston Harbor Casino in Everett have been fined $25,000 for alcohol violations. State regulators said today that Big Night Entertainment Group will also improve staff training after five incidents where people were served more alcohol than should have been allowed. The Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission says the violations happened at Memoir Nightclub during a nine-month period. On Wall Street, stocks closed mixed today. The Dow was up seven-tenths of a percent to close at 34,152. The Nasdaq fell two-tenths of a percent, while the S&P 500 gained two-tenths of a percent. Marketplace will have the full range of business news at 6.30. It's 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in applied business analytics, on campus or online. Learn the concepts, tools, and techniques used in the process of making informed, data-driven business decisions. Learn more at bu.edu met. For WBUR members, you can join us at City Space Wednesday, August 17th, for an exclusive sneak peek of our new daily podcast and a wine and cheese after party. Free tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. With the new school year in sight, colleges are starting to prepare for a new public health threat, monkeypox. The White House recently declared monkeypox a public health emergency, and campuses have already seen cases. Pooja Salhotra reports. Summer is usually a time of rest in the education world. But for college administrators like Andrea Connor, there hasn't been much of a break. I have ended up accidental COVID czar. Connor is dean of students at Lake Forest College, a small school about 30 miles north of Chicago. During the pandemic, she led a team of people tasked with responding to COVID-19. Now they've added a new virus to their watch list, monkeypox. So whether they're students, their faculty or staff, we want to educate them on what to do, what to look for, what the symptoms are, and frankly, exactly where to go <laughs> when, uh, when or if you're concerned um, about monkeypox. Over the last two years, colleges and universities have found ways to manage COVID on campus, but a different virus calls for a different response. Here's the epidemiologist Jay Varma of Weill Cornell Medicine. Monkeypox is, uh, even though it is a, a important public health threat right now, um, it does not present the same risks to campuses Um, that COVID did. That's mostly because COVID spreads very easily through the air, but monkeypox is less contagious. The current outbreak is spreading almost entirely through intimate contact. Still, it doesn't mean colleges are off the hook. It's likely 
um, that some students on campus uh, will potentially contract monkeypox. In fact, some students already have. Georgetown University in D.C., University of Texas in Austin, and Westchester University outside Philadelphia all told NPR they had at least one confirmed case over the summer. When the fall semester starts, those numbers could go up. Varma says there are certain areas of campus that colleges should keep a close eye on. For example, sports teams and locker rooms, as well as the coming into close contact with, you know, towels or clothing, uh, which can occur in gyms or, or possibly even in, for example, theater troops. A monkeypox infection can also last a lot longer than COVID, sometimes for several weeks. So that means a student who gets the virus could be stuck in their dorm room for a big chunk of their academic semester. This presents a very important challenge, uh, both to the individual who has to put up with that level of isolation, as well as the university itself, uh, which needs to make arrangements to support that. Connor at Lake Forest says if a student gets monkeypox, the school will coordinate to help them with their basic needs. We'll have to deliver meals to them. Um, we'll have to make sure that they can get their laundry done. The school is less equipped to help with testing. For that, Lake Forest students have to go off campus. It's a different story at some larger colleges. We have a population of over 37,000 students when everybody's back here in the, the fall and a large workforce. David Sulelis leads the COVID-19 response team at the University of California, Irvine. He says students can already get tested for monkeypox at the campus health center, and the school isn't stopping there. We have actually um, requested that our student health center be considered as a site for vaccinations. Right now, there aren't quite enough vaccines to go around. But if nothing else, he says, colleges are better prepared for monkeypox than they were for COVID. I think a lot of the structures and foundations that campus has built and relationships that we built will allow us to start in a better place in responding to monkeypox. For NPR News, I'm Pooja Salhotra. Confession time. I never got into Game of Thrones. I tried. I did. But honestly, life is too short. Now, I know many of you had a different experience with the HBO series based on George R.R. R. Martin's fantasy novels. Game of Thrones was a rating juggernaut, and it racked up 59, 59 Emmy Awards. Now, a prequel is coming out, House of the Dragon. It starts Sunday night on HBO again, and Glenn Weldon, a host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, is here to get us all ready. Maybe, maybe even me. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Mary Louise. All right, you're going to have to just walk me through this here. Oh, no, look, I get it. I recapped Game of Thrones for NPR, and I kept hearing from all kinds of folks telling me why they weren't watching. Some said it was there just too many characters, and they were mostly, you know, beardy, middle-aged white dudes who all looked alike. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Right. For some, it was the violence, which was extreme, also a fair point. For others, it was its treatment of women, which the show was rightly critiqued for, I think. And for some, it was all the... All the fantasy stuff, the magic and the dragons that kind of snuck into the series uh, slowly at first, and then that's pretty much what it all became about. So, Marilise, trust me, you're not alone. There were an awful lot of dragons. Um, and the, the name of this prequel is giving me pause already, House of the uh -huh. Dragon. Does it correct for the dragons or any of the other things you mentioned? Well, I mean, it still throws a lot at you, character names, place names, history. But essentially, the story of this show is a war over succession. This is War of the Roses, right? So if you can follow Shakespeare's history plays, if you can read Wolf Hall, you can get this. The show opens 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones, so you won't need to remember 
any of the original characters, you'll be visiting some familiar places, yes, but the conflict mostly takes place within one single family, so there's less to keep track of. Okay, well, that's encouraging. It's, uh, I can start with a, with a clean slate. Yeah, I mean, the Targaryens are the family in question. They were the folks with the long platinum hair. They tend to intermarry. They have a kinship with dragons. And House of the Dragon is set back at the height of the Targaryen dynasty when they're still the most powerful force in the world because they got a lot of dragons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as the series opens, the king, who's played by Paddy Considine, is ruling during a time of peace, but he is getting older and he hasn't had any male heirs. And his younger brother, Damon, who's played by Doctor Who's Matt Smith, is an excellent soldier and he thinks he's in line for the Iron Throne. But he's also very cruel and impulsive, so everyone around the king is jockeying to suggest any alternative to that guy. And one of them is the king's youngest daughter, Rhaenyra. She's played in the first half of the season by Millie Alcock, but there has never been a queen on the Iron Throne before, you see. So you can imagine what all those beardy middle-aged white dudes think of that idea. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so you have seen the first couple episodes. Um... What would you say to someone who didn't make it through Game of Thrones? Uh, Me, hypothetically, should we dive in? Well, it depends on why you gave up. I mean, if it was because of all the characters, yeah, this is a bit leaner in that regard. If it was because of the violence, I mean, it's still there. It's just as intense. If it was because of its treatment of women, well, there's still a lot of boobs and butts, but it does feel less gratuitous. I mean, your mileage may vary. But, uh, Mary Louise, if it's because of all the fantasy stuff, like it sounds like you were, uh, look it, it's right there in the name. As you say, this is House of the Dragon. This is all dragons all the time. But I think the most important thing for people to know is that Game of Thrones famously went past the books that Martin has written. And you could feel that. The showrunners were trying to land the plane in the dark. Right. I mean, I didn't even know what the ending was because I didn't watch Game of Thrones, but I know nobody liked it. Oh, I heard from a lot of those people, yeah. But if you are worried that you're going to get burned again, don't be, because this is a story with a beginning, a middle, and a definite end taken right from a book. There will be no vamping. And what's interesting is that the book it's based on, Fire and Blood, is presented not as a novel, but as conflicting historical accounts written in different styles from different points of view. Now, that makes for a very fun read, but television has different demands, and so what's left ambiguous in the book is going to have to be explicitly dramatized one way or the other. So the showrunners are going to have to pick a side, and that's going to be fun to see. So you say. Glenn Weldon, he's a host of NPR's <laughs> Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. Happy watching. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In our forecast, clouds tonight, showers likely later on, temperatures in the 60s tonight. Tomorrow, clouds and scattered showers, highs around 70 degrees. Thursday should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the 80s and sunshine on Friday with highs in the upper 80s. It is 71 degrees in Boston at 630. Stay with us. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com, and the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers.